This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, ATP applicants, you're about to get a new checkride standard. And quick-thinking passengers help out in an aircraft crash. Also, drones getting a little too close for comfort. Look out for the new Thrush Switchback. It's now certified. Awesome. All right, David, you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, skydive. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. And David, um, once again, you caught up. You're our workhorse lately. Uh, you caught up with our guests. This is Sean and Debbie Malone. And uh, as hurricane season comes to an end, um, they are part of Operation Airdrop. They are. Sean Malone uh, lives in North Carolina, Ian, and he was part of the first Operation Airdrop at Hurricane Harvey. And then a hurricane came to him, uh, Hurricane Florence, and then he also helped out with Hurricane Michael. And he's got a lot of tips for folks who are pilots and want to help out as well as non-pilots can also help out. Okay, cool. All right, we'll hear from them later, but uh, let's get started with the news. So the ACS, the Airman Certification Standards. Now, if you haven't gone for a check ride in a while, um, maybe you haven't been paying attention, but especially all you career-minded folks who are going to be moving up the ranks, going for your ATP, uh, the FAA has a new draft out of the ATP Airman Certification Standard. That's right, Ian. And the key message here I wanted to let podcast listeners know about is that public comments are available until December 21st. Mm-hmm. So that's a key date for folks who want to get involved in the new standards. Yeah. So the ACS, what it does, I mean, it, again, if you haven't been paying attention, basically the FAA had come together with industry groups and industry had sort of raised their hand and said, the knowledge tests stink. They have nothing to do with real-world flying. There's no standard. The questions seem completely random. I mean, you know that, right? We've we've all had that experience. Right. We all have, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so they put together this uh, committee and came up with a new standard that combines the practical test standard or the flying test standard and the knowledge test and creates a standard for the knowledge test and wrapped it together in the ACS. And so the whole idea, Ian, is if I'm not mistaken, I know that you're an instructor, is to kind of have pilots 
do the kind of things that we're supposed to be tested on, but in a real world scenario and then talk about or experience why that's important. Yeah, that's exactly right. And they get into more risk factors and that's exactly right. It's supposed to be sort of real world knowledge as opposed to completely random stuff. So it's a, it's a step in the right direction, but we know from the private when they did this that the FAA does throw some curveballs. And so I would say if you have feelings about what should be tested on the ATP and you have reasons for those feelings, it's like get on there and comment and um, you know make your voice heard on that. I agree, and I think now is the time for folks to speak up. Um, I, I'm not an ATP person, but if I was, uh, now would be the time for me to kind of throw my hat in the ring and, and just, you know, the FAA does listen to folks and frequently they'll change some of the standards mm-hmm. or at least hear people out. Yeah. So it is a good time to comment. Yeah, that's right. Um, so moving on now, usually we don't talk about crashes. Uh, it's depressing. You know, <laughs> there's lots of other places you can read about it and everything else. But there were two that happened just recently that I really wanted us to talk about. And um, just because they're incredible, both of them, just amazing stories. That's right. I think the first one, uh, which probably hits close to your heart because it was a helicopter crash, Ian, was over in Hawaii, where basically a couple were, they were on a flight seeing tour over near Honolulu. And uh, there was a medical condition that the pilot experienced. And the the woman was in the front seat and her fiance was in the back seat. And I'll go ahead and throw it to you if you want to enlighten our podcast listeners what happened. Yeah, it was uh, it was amazing. Basically, the guy, um, the pilot slumped over the cyclic, uh, which is, you know, I guess closest uh, analogous is to the yoke in an airplane but slumped over the cyclic and they they started to descend because of that and i guess the the husband or the fiance in the back yet was yelling at uh at his fiance to basically say he said pull 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 and so she yanked back on the cyclic just in time basically to to lessen the descent and so they still went in the water, but they went in really shallow water, and everybody walked away. Yeah. Amazing. They did. They did. They had some broken bones, so it wasn't like they were completely uninjured. But so she yanked on the cyclic in, and what that slows you down, right? That's like, uh, like you said, it was like pulling up a, a yoke in an aircraft. And yeah. um, do you think they hit an auto-rotation zone, or, or what do you think happened? No, I mean, it's actually pretty surprising because it looks like the helicopter, uh, they don't say in the news reports, but from the pictures, it looks like maybe it was an R-44. And yeah, it is. It looks like, yeah, it was an R-44. The Chicago Tribune did point that out. Okay. Okay. Great. Yeah. And so they, um, you know, they have the low G pushover issue, which means you and you're trained like ad nauseum not to push forward hard on the cyclic because that creates a low G situation, which can result in mast bumping. And so to have somebody slump over the cyclic like that and have it pushed forward probably pretty strongly. Um, to not get into a low G condition, uh, I just, I, it's pretty, I see. pretty amazing accident. I see. So what you're saying is basically is that not only was it, uh, I mean, of course they did the right thing to arrest the, the, uh, the descent, but you're saying when he slumped over, that probably was close to entering that mass bumping condition. Yeah, it certainly could have. I mean, they, they tell you from the beginning, it's like, don't push on the cyclic and, uh, so, you know, if a guy slumps over it and it and the Robinson cyclics move, there's no, there's basically no feedback. I mean, the 44 has hydraulics, but it's so light on the controls that uh, to have that much weight on it pushing forward, it would not be surprised if you got, you know, we're really close to that low G. So it's just a fascinating accident. The fact that, you know, they pulled and, and survived. It's incredible. That is. It is. We're glad that they um, that they did. And I, I'm wondering. uh I'm wondering if the pilot will be okay. There's an allusion to a medical condition. We don't know further now. Of course, the NTSB and the FAA are probably investigating that. But um, but glad they weren't 
more seriously hurt. Yeah. So that that was a good news situation. Yeah. So this other one that I want to talk about, this guy, this is amazing because it, it just, um, I just think I read this story and I think, man, that guy, what a tough guy this guy is, and what a, what a funny guy, and you can imagine it, you know, happening. Um, but basically, this this seaplane pilot was doing touch and goes at this lake, and something happened with the airplane. You know, the the obviously the news reports are not very detailed, but essentially something was wrong with the airplane. And the guy, the, the the airplane sunk, and the guy just got out and walked home. Yeah, now this is up in Wisconsin, so that's the land of many lakes. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. He, he apparently crashed his ultralight uh, into the lake doing some kind of a, man, a maneuver. And the news story said it, it broke apart, which is kind of hard to believe. But And I don't know what kind of aircraft it was. It was indicated made it might have been, possibly been an LSA. Yeah, it could have been. But like you said, he was able to walk out of the lake, and he went home, and that's where authorities found him. Yeah, yeah, and he didn't tell anybody um, and uh, just went home. And so, yeah, they tracked him down at the house, and uh, he said, oh, I was going to go back and get it tomorrow. Yeah, well, I'm glad he's okay, and, uh, you know, hopefully uh, that has something that we could take a page of that book and learn by, which is a low-speed maneuver, which Mm -hmm. is a Mm touch-and-go. And And, um, if you're flying, you know, Flying by the numbers, you know, you should be pretty slow, and hopefully that helped. But it's a non-forgiving environment. You know, you're a seaplane pilot, and I, I got my seaplane rating a couple of years ago, and we both know that it's not like landing on shock, you know, shocks or donuts or uh, anything like that or a grass field. It is really hard when you yeah. land, even if you land normally in a seaplane. Yeah. It's a pretty tough and hard landing. Yeah, that's very true. Very true. So uh, glad he's also okay, but uh, kudos to him for uh, just saying, eh, well, I guess the airplane's broken. I'll have to walk home and uh, clean on and up his mess the next day. So pretty incredible story. It is. So moving on, um, drones. Now, this uh, in the uh, news business, I would say is called a dog bites man story, which is means it's kind of an obvious story, uh-huh. but uh, the details are pretty interesting. Uh, basically, there was a researcher from Embry-Riddle who put up a drone sensing piece of technology and essentially counted the number of drones in and around the airport. Now, this is at Daytona Beach, Class C airport. And uh, the details of what he found, I just thought were fascinating. It, it is. It really is. And, you know, I'm a little bit of a drone aficionado myself. I just actually went drone flying on Sunday, you know, for a little bit. And, uh, you know, the know before you fly thing is pretty important to check TFRs, even for regular pilots, uh, you know, fixed wing or what we call full scale pilots. But apparently a lot of drone pilots are not doing that because they are flying really, really close to Daytona Beach International Airport, which has tons of of aviation operations every day. And you're right, the uh, DJI folks use their own technology. It's called Aeroscope. It doesn't detect other drones made, you know, made by other manufacturers that detects their own drones. Mm. And there were uh, 126 drone flights within Class C airspace, far too close for comfort, we're saying, in the runways and approach zones by 73 distinct aircraft systems. And this is for wow. about 13 days in May. That's amazing. So it's 13 days more than 125 flights, and that's just of one manufacturer of drones. Well, that's right. It doesn't include Parrot drones or drones by other other manufacturers besides those two. Um, although DJI is the biggest, they're certainly not the uh, not the only one around. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's just amazing. So obviously, there's you know, I think like I said, it was it's kind of a dog bites man story. So it's like we all know 
that there are drones up there where there shouldn't be. You know, not as much training goes into drone flying. And um, a lot of, I think, non-certified people are probably out there flying drones. And there's tons of education still to do to that community. But it's just, uh, that shocked me at how many there were. Me too, me too. And, uh, you know, the study by the Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, I mean, it really is a little bit self-serving, but it's very important for them to get this research under control because they have so many aviation operations at Embry-Riddle. And not to mention that that Daytona Beach Airport is super busy with NASCAR races and Daytona Beach Bike Week events and other events. You know, the major air carriers come into that airport, Delta, Southwest, American, all those guys. Yeah. And low low to the approach zones and close to the runway is not a great place for a drone to be flying. Yeah, definitely not. So, yeah, if you're a drone pilot, make sure you get that training that you need and uh, stay out of airspace you're not supposed to be in, just like just like man pilots, just like man pilots. That's right. Check it out before you go. And now there's the other thing that we didn't mention yet, but there's a kind of a cool new system that has come online recently, and it's called the Low Altitude Authorization and Notification Capability, L-A-A-N-C, came on board in 2017, and that allows remote pilots who are certificated under Part 107, which is the commercial drone pilots, the folks that are getting paid for their work, doing real estate work, newspaper work, things like that, that you're able to look at this LAC system and determine where you can fly and where you cannot fly. And it's basically in and around some of the nation's busiest airports. So that is a resource to drone pilots that would help them avoid some of the busier airspace and fly safely in and near there. Cool. Okay, great tip. Great tip. Um, moving on. Now, this is not an, an area we would talk about very often, but um, I, I went down the rabbit hole and got really interested in, in a lot of these specifics, as we'll learn. But um, Thrush, which is the maker of ag planes, um, based in Georgia, I think. That is correct. And another Georgia connection. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> they just came out with the Thrush 510G switchback, which is a, it's called a seat, single engine uh, air tanker aircraft. And uh, it's pretty impressive. This thing can hold 500 gallons of water, retardant, whatever. So pretty cool airplane. It is. Uh, that is interesting. We were talking about this a little bit before the podcast uh, began. And, um, yeah, five hundred gallons of retardant water. That's what. That's like times six. That's that's three thousand pounds, right? Yeah, that's right. That's pretty amazing, and that's a, a single engine. Now they do make this aircraft in a two seat version. I, I delved a little bit further, and for training purposes, Ian, they can make it in a dual cockpit configuration as well. That's cool. Yeah, I'm sure that's really useful because yeah, as we know, a lot of those ag planes are single seat. Right. And so I was telling you a little while ago that I just read a little story on some uh, Lockheed Neptune P-2V aircraft that are firefighting aircraft that have recently been retired. And we were sort of doing a little comparison between how many gallons the thrush switchback holds and how many gallons of retardant this ginormous P-2V holds. And the P-2V it's an interesting aircraft. It's two radial engines and two jet engines, and it's about 2,000 gallons on that. Now, you're talking about four engines carrying 2,080 gallons versus a single engine with 500 gallons, which I, I think is pretty astounding. It is pretty amazing. So, you know, I, I mentioned I went down the rabbit hole on this because I thought, oh, 500 gallons, man, that's pretty impressive out of a single engine. And so um, I had never heard of these. You know, it's, a, it's an area we don't cover very often. I had not heard of seats. And so I started to kind of look into it and thought, huh, I wonder who else is making those. 
And um, Air Tractor, which is out of Texas, uh-huh. they're making them. They have one called the 802. They Actually, this is really cool. They have one that's um, a scooper that's on floats. So the pilot can land on a lake or whatever, scoop up the water and keep going. That makes sense. Um, yeah, yeah. They also have one not on floats. This thing is pretty impressive. Now, this one's out. It's being sold. It's in the market. Uh, the 802 can carry something like 800 gallons of water or retardant. And that's a, another case of a single engine, an SEAT. That's incredible. Yeah, it is amazing. It is amazing. And so also, and now I don't think this one's out, but a couple of years ago, Air Tractor announced the 1002, the AT1002. Woo! Yeah. So as you might imagine, single engine airplane, right? Uh-huh. One PT6 engine, one five-blade Hartzell prop. This thing could carry... 1,060 gallons of fuel or retardant. It had a 10,000-pound useful load, 20,000-pound max gross. That's a lot of fire retardant or uh, aerial application material. That's uh, 1,000 gallons. Man, it's like 6,000 pounds. Yeah, it's incredible. It's just absolutely amazing. I mean, can you imagine a 20,000-pound single-engine airplane? I mean, these things are big, but they're not massive. So... It's just a phenomenal piece of engineering. It is. It is. Well, I, I hope that our, our boys in Albany, Georgia, where they make the thrush switchback, I hope that, that that will bring a few sales to them and also help out folks around the country who are looking to have aerial applications. That's where we get a lot of our food. You know, we still depend a lot on on these aerial applicators and and as well as firefighting. This is just uh, the firefighting industry. I touched, touched on that just real briefly, but... I mean, it is a tight-knit community, Ian, and uh, it's just so important, and it is so dangerous to do that kind of work. Yeah, no, it's very true, very true. All right, so hey, I want to give an update on our last story here uh, about FBO pricing. We talk about this often, and there's been a little bit of news on it. Um, In fact, you may have seen it a bit in the mainstream media because thanks to AOPA pushing on this and uh, conferring with members of Congress— GAO, the Government Accountability Office, uh, which is a, a big deal. This is kind of a, I guess you could call it a watchdog sort of research agency for for Congress and others. For sure. Uh, GAO is, yeah, they're looking into the FAA's oversight of FBO pricing, which is, I think, really big and good news. I think so, too. I think as finally we have some people looking over the shoulder and, and sort of acknowledging what AOPA has kind of led the forefront of the industry in, which is just you know, be transparent, publish some of these prices for parking and for fuel and for other services rather than keeping it um, under wraps, that kind of thing. Yeah. And, you know, AOPA, through all of this, I mean, you, you may have noticed if you've been following this issue, it's like we've been pushing individual FBOs and working through, uh, you know, the FAA process a bit, but have been frustrated with with the FAA process, even though the FAA is supposed to oversee some of these um, airport access issues. uh, We think that they're just not being very responsive. And so I think this GAO study hopefully will say that uh, that's exactly the case, that they're not doing their watchdog uh, role and uh, and really push them a little bit to get involved. True, true. And also, just to let our podcast listeners know, as we record this today, that many, many aviation organizations have come together right now to release a thing called Know Before You Go, which is best business practices for FBOs with a set of recommended practices about pricing and transparency and things like that. Something that AOPA has been pushing real hard on for the last couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. Great point. Great point. All right, David. Hey, let's bring on uh, Sean and Debbie. Now, again, um, these folks are from uh, Operation Airdrop, really phenomenal organization, grassroots 
folks just wanting to help other people uh, through the use of their airplanes, both pilots and, as you mentioned, non-pilots. And uh, the story of how they got started and, and how they organized these things is really fascinating. Okay, well, welcome to uh, Hangar Talk uh, this afternoon, and, and we have via Skype from North Carolina, Sean Malone and his wife, Debbie. They are uh, Operation Airdrop volunteers. Sean, welcome to the Hangar Talk podcast. Well, thanks for having us. We appreciate the uh, time. Now, tell the folks out there real quick that don't know about Operation Airdrop, what it is, just in a nutshell, what it is. Uh, it's essentially uh, a rallying uh, around general aviation for uh, natural disaster relief, specifically hurricane relief. It was started right after uh, Hurricane Harvey in uh, Texas by a couple of guys in general aviation out there and really uh, launched through social media where a bunch of uh, pilots volunteered their air, their time in their aircraft to fly down to Houston, pick up donated supplies such as water, diapers, formula, first aid supplies, etc., load up their aircraft with however much useful load they could, and then fly to small airstrips that were you know, accessible only to the smaller airplanes before the, the uh, highways uh, were opened up. Yeah, and, and so the key there, was, Sean, was that General Aviation jumped into some of these uh, areas that were surrounded by water at the time, if I recall, in Texas. Absolutely. Yeah, we, um, for a couple of, the, this is uh, Operation Airdrop's fifth hurricane uh, when we were down helping with uh, Michael. But uh, with, with some of these hurricanes, we've landed on drag strips. We've landed on uh, partial, partially submerged runways. And we, for the first time with Michael, we actually even used unimproved airstrips. That's kind of cool. Now, um, let's tell the, uh, the podcast listeners who are joining us. And by, by the way, you're joining us via Skype. Um, I'm in Maryland. And you're in North Carolina. But you have a really cool airplane. And tell us a little bit about the airplane and how did you handle the unimproved strip with that, with that Cessna? Well, we, uh, we currently fly a uh, 1976 uh, Turbo Centurion. We affectionately call it NED. Our call sign is November 9 Echo Delta, so it uh, pulls out to, to nicely to NED, so <laughs> affectionately cool. NED. Uh, and uh, has a pretty distinctive paint scheme, so, uh, so you can kind of see NED flying all over. But I personally did not land in the unapproved airstrip this, with this hurricane, but uh, the Cessna is well known for its... Uh, hauling capability as well as its short short field capabilities and uh, unimproved airstrip capabilities. Now that now that Centurion is that a retractable gear aircraft? Yes sir. Yeah, it's uh So 210 Cessna, right? That's correct. Cessna 210, 310 horsepower, uh constant speed propeller, retract, six seats and we'll have about a 1700 pounds payload. I'm sorry, useful load and with full fuel we'll have about 8 800 pounds of uh, payload. Sean, that is, that's a lot of supplies to haul. That is outstanding. So it's like a station wagon of the air. That's what we, yeah, we call it a heavy hauler. Uh, it's, a, it's a truck. It's basically a truck. And the, the largest load we've carried so far is 1,000 pounds. That's amazing. Yeah. We, uh, now, my wife is very adept at loading that airplane. She'll, uh, if, if you get on uh, AOPA's website, there's a picture of her with, uh, where we were helping with Hurricane Florence. 
where she's actually in the baggage area itself. She crawls up into the baggage area itself and, and stacks, stacks the boxes and the diapers. And there's not even enough uh, room for light to get through. <laughs> so she packs that thing tight. Yeah, she was pretty good there. Um, I didn't realize that that was, that was Debbie, but, um, yeah, I wrote that story and folks could, could go to, uh, www.aopa.org and do a little quick search for, uh, Operation Airdrop, or really Hurricane Florence was was the picture that we were talking about. That was in North Carolina. That was cl- way closer to home for you. Yes, sir. And, and you just got back from Florida, the total devastation down there around the Gulf Coast for Hurricane Michael. So it has been a very – it's been a rough year for, for folks along the coast. And thank goodness we have general aviation pilots like yourself and like your wife, Debbie, that help out. Absolutely. We were amazed by the uh, outpouring of uh, general aviation volunteerism with Florence, we had basically 350 airplanes volunteer for over 500 sorties, and we delivered over 285,000 pounds of relief supplies uh, in one week. And that was that was in North Carolina for Florence, for sure, right? Correct, correct. A little bit of smaller effort down in Florida. Gainesville was not quite the town that Raleigh was, and I think there's a little bit of donor fatigue, and uh, the timing wasn't quite as as good. But we still had we're collating the final number so i don't know the final tally but we probably had 200 airplanes down in uh in gainesville that's cool yeah and we probably hauled 100 and 100 to 150 thousand pounds of relief supplies i would guess that is really neat and also um i think the operation airdrop folks found out that that uh college students made pretty good volunteers so they uh, they based not too far from a college in north carolina and also in um in florida absolutely uh, you know operation airdrop is sort of a work in progress these guys are very very adept at uh, overcoming and adapting and with every disaster we sort of learn something to become more efficient and one of those is to try and make sure we get an fbo that allows a free flow of traffic in and out of the uh, ramp within the margin of safety but also near a college town because uh, I would say for every pilot, there's probably 10 folks, 10 boots on the ground making it happen, which with Hurricane Michael, Debbie spent a lot more time on the ground helping with the logistics of receiving the donations, boxing them up and weighing them, packaging them up in very easy sort of uh, allotments to make them easy to load and then loading the airplanes and, and getting uh, getting quick turns. So the, the boots on the ground are really what makes it happen. Exactly. And so I'm going to put uh, – I'm going to ask Debbie to, to speak up for a minute and tell the podcast listeners here via Skype, Debbie, why it is that you volunteer for a, an operation, a relief operation like this. Because we're able to. All right. Well, I now saw you sticking your head out of the baggage compartment of the 210 there. So what's a, what's a normal day like when you're on the ground helping out, um, you know, doing some of the logistics work? Very, very busy. There's volunteers. It's like a beehive in there, actually. And so we've got donations coming in the front door at any given time. There's cars dropping off supplies. So we need volunteers that are helping to unload the cars, we have somebody that needs to be stationed to check in volunteers that are going to be working in the hangar. We need somebody who can give the volunteers a tour of what needs to be done and where things need to go. We need someone to show people how to weigh things. We need to have somebody who can talk to dispatch and the command center and see what planes we have coming down in the next few minutes so that we can have pallets of supplies for that particular aircraft ready to be loaded at the correct amount of weight and like sean said anywhere there's daylight i like to stick 
diapers in. There <laughs> you break go. Break the diapers apart and keep them in their little plastic wraps, get them out of the boxes, and if you can see daylight, you can shove something in there that's light. Makes sense. You'd be amazed how many diapers uh, 400 pounds makes. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and the other thing is that folks who are in these uh, areas, these often rural areas that are affected, um, really need those kind of supplies. You know, little GA airplanes are not super great at, at you know bringing in tons of water and heavy stuff like that, but uh, clothing and cleanup supplies – Diapers, uh, baby food, those are critical supplies that folks really need. You know, growing families need that. And it's just, I mean, if you've never been in a hurricane, for, for the podcast listeners, I've been quite a, in quite a few as, as a photojournalist. It is, a, it is a sight to behold. It is not pretty, i got to tell you. That's true, and it, it is. They need those supplies desperately. The first couple of days, two, three days, the most requested item from those towns that our pilots are getting directly when they're landing on the airstrips was food they were hungry mm-hmm. everything had been wiped out so it was able we were able to get those essential food products directly to them immediately and then as the hurricane clears out and people start to need other supplies you can get past that survival mode right hopefully the roads open up within a week or so and then air in raleigh they actually there was a local catering company that uh, made a thousand pre-made hot meals uh, and delivered them to the FBO, and uh, a couple of the pilots loaded them up and delivered, you know, piping hot meals to the airport, and then the local fire department delivered them door-to-door that evening. That is cool. So it's really a, a community-oriented approach, and everyone is helping everyone out. It doesn't matter their life situations. Everyone pitches in. And isn't that the most marvelous thing that you've seen? It's really moving. Um, it really you know. is. Um, in Down in Gainesville, I'd say that our largest volunteer base were retired women. They're down there in Florida, and they said, we have nothing else to do. We're so excited to be able to help and have something to do. And they were there day after day, 12, 14 hours a day, weighing boxes and sorting the supplies for us, which was amazing. These guys were great. Fantastic. So now you guys are doing this as a family operation. So I would say that uh, other families might want to pitch in and maybe someone could be the pilot and and someone else could help out with the logistics and on the ground. Absolutely. Everybody can have a role. My older son flew with me a couple of missions with Florence and then my younger son uh, went down with us and and flew one mission with me to uh, Mexico Beach, but then stayed in the hangar with Debbie to help load boxes. Um, so, yeah, and, and we'd see uh, young kids, old kids, whole families and all political backgrounds, all economic backgrounds. Everybody just pitched in knowing that no no single job was really more important than the other. Everyone had a critical role to play. That's the most interesting part of it. And we should give some props to your sons for uh, for helping you guys get Skype on your computer so we could do this podcast. Oh, yeah. The, the old folks didn't know how to do it. <laughs> if you want to give them a quick shout-out, we got time for that. Oh, our three kids are uh, – Roger's our oldest. He's at UNC Wilmington, and there were a lot of Wilmington students who uh, helped with the Florence relief effort. And then Jake is our youngest son who uh, went down to Florida with us, and Sam had other obligations and couldn't couldn't make it. But our, our two sons definitely pitched in and helped. Fantastic. Absolutely. So so you know, getting back to some basics, a lot of the podcast listeners here that are tuned in via Skype um, are listening now to and probably wondering how could they get involved in a relief effort like this. You know, pilots like ourselves, Sean and Debbie, we want to give back a little bit. So uh, give me maybe five tips of what people should do if they want to get involved. And we'll follow in a few minutes 
with what you should not do. But let's uh, maybe you know a few tips of what you can do to get involved, and uh, and a couple of you know pointers for the folks listening. Absolutely. So I think one of the most important things is safety. You've got to make sure that everything is done in a safe, operated in a safe manner. But really, any aircraft is capable of helping. We saw airplanes anywhere from a, a Zenith stall aircraft that would carry about 50 pounds all the way up to um, a short and CRJs um, So and anything and everything in between. So there's really no aircraft that's too small to uh, to help as long as you're operating it within your uh, weight and balance envelope. Gotcha. And uh, but generally, the easiest thing to do is to get onto the Operation Airdrop website. They have both a Facebook page and a website. And there's a sign-up form on the uh, webpage where you put in your information as far as uh, contact information, what certificates you have. You know, we can use uh, VFR pilots, IFR pilots, commercial pilots. We you know, would just ask that everyone be current and proficient in the aircraft they're flying. Exactly. A lot of pilots will sign up who don't own their own aircraft. And uh, it's, it's not often that a, that a uh, aircraft is without a pilot, but uh, certainly where pilots, even if they're non-flying, can be very helpful is on the ground with the uh, loading of the aircraft. You know, we we always worry about weight and balance and making sure that uh, that we're filling the aircraft in a safe manner. And really, pilots can help be a check and balance on each other. That uh, some of us haven't calculated uh, weight and balance in a long time, particularly something like the 210, where if it fits, it flies. Uh, right. There's a right. tendency to to get out of the habit of checking weight and balance. And, and when you're when you're pushing your, your gross weight, you really want to make sure that those numbers have been checked and rechecked, especially fuel management, because a lot of times you want to leave fuel on the ground to make sure that you ha- you can carry extra baggage. But really the easiest thing, sign up on the, the uh, Facebook page or the web page, and then be prepared, particularly around uh, hurricane season. Make sure that, uh, that you've got your currency up that your uh, plane's been annual, that all the, the uh, you know, everything's uh, ready to go. Your databases on your uh, GPSs are all updated. Essentially, just be prepared to be dispatched within a week, week's notice, and uh, have your aircraft and yourself ready to go. And speaking of yourself ready to go, you touched on the fact of being current and, uh, you know, catching up on some of that weight and balance stuff that we hadn't really talked about that much, you know, because a lot of folks uh, like myself even, I'll use uh, some of the apps online to to get the weight and balance in, within the parameters. But VFR pilots, IFR pilots, you said, get your airplane, get yourself. Basically, some of the common sense stuff that we do as pilots every day anyway. Absolutely. And uh, some of the questions, I'm an AME as well, and some of the questions I was getting is, can I can I do this type of uh, public benefit flying on basic med? And you absolutely can. We are not functioning uh, on uh, anything other than a third-class medical uh, we are not compensated. We cannot be compensated. So uh, it's all volunteer, including your fuel and your time. So as long as you've got a um, up and current either FAA medical or are on basic med, then uh, you can actually fly. And it might be good to note that with the most recent FAA authorization, there was some additional language put into that authorization bill adding protections for public benefit flying as far as uh, shielding from liability. Gotcha. Yeah, that's that's brand new. You're right. That's just just, uh, just recently, uh, that has just recently changed, and so that helps out a little bit. It really does because uh, a lot of people are concerned that the, their, their insurance won't indemnify their whole insurance should something happen. Or you know even their their liability personal liability and and you are covered under that 
We do uh, have all pilots and passengers sign a release through Operation Airdrop as far as uh, releasing the operation itself from liability, but we're basically uh, covered under the Good Samaritan type policy with the, the recent reauthorization act. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. I'm glad you brought it up, Sean. In fact, Raul Murrow, um, who's with the Recreational Aviation Foundation and also the Air Care Alliance, and that's aircarealliance.org, uh, he emailed me recently and said, that, you know, how much behind the scenes uh, activity went into getting that protection for pilots for these type of relief uh, efforts. And that's something AOPA has, has worked behind the scenes uh, for years to try to get about, too. So let me, uh, you know, we want to tip our hats to him. But also, this uh, aircarealliance.org is another uh, good place to, to stop for, for getting information. And, and Operation Airdrop is operation-airdrop.com online if you want to sign up. And it is quick and easy to sign up. I did it myself. Yeah, it's very, very easy. And, and certainly the more you can do ahead of time, the better and just being prepared. I think we're sort of winding down the hurricane season for this year, but I can bet you we'll, we'll wind up next year. Oh, again. yeah, for sure. Yeah, it runs through November, so, and we've seen some bad ones this year and last year, too. And gosh, you guys, before we talk about some of the stuff that you, we don't want pilots to do, um, you started in Raleigh, in the Raleigh-Durham area last year, and you went to Texas, which is a pretty long haul, to jump in with uh, Operation Airdrop and Hurricane Harvey. Why did you do that? Well, you know, um, I've been wanting to get involved in uh, public benefit flying for years and had signed up for Angel Flight, among some other things, and was was generally somewhat concerned about the liability issues associated with that. And when Harvey came through, I was just perusing social media, wanting to figure out, is there any way that, that we could be helpful? And then Operation Airdrop came up, and it seemed like couldn't have been better suited for general aviation as far as the ability to get into to airfields that were not accessible to anything other than road, rotary wing traffic and mm-hmm. before the government had spooled up. And so we, we really just felt strongly about wanting to uh, lend a helping hand, particularly given the, the scope of Harvey and, and how many people were involved. And that was, a, that was a huge flood out in Texas in the Houston area, and it really affected – it affected the area for, uh, gosh, even now it's still affected at some of the communities. So what was that like when you um, you just showed up? This is your first time getting involved, and you really probably didn't know exactly what to do. I mean, you for you know, there's even a special call sign that you got to use. Can I give us a little bit of the background of how that, that came about and what you were thinking and how you dealt with it? Sure. Well, I think we were very impressed by uh, the discussions, the early discussions we had with the Operation Airdrop Board and how organized they were. They've got they've got background in logistics and and National Guard and ATC and government liaisons, and so they they really impressed us uh, as far as their organizational skills. We really didn't want to fly seven hours down there to to be able to do nothing. Right. So when we arrived, it was uh, it was really impressive that that they had already uh, organized a, a receiving center. They had a couple of uh, satellite airports. We operated mostly out of Colleen, Texas, for that disaster, although they had several airports that they were using for, as uh, distrib- distribution centers. But almost, uh, you know, the first day we were down there, we were assigned to Colleen and were, were flying mission under the uh, Compassion Flight call sign. Okay. And the airspace around there was extremely busy. The Houston Hobby uh, Class Bravo is very busy around there. And and the air traffic controllers could not have been more helpful, allowing us to go in and out of the uh, Bravo, uh, Class Bravo. Uh, they were uh, certainly sequencing compassion flight planes uh, with priority, th- despite all of the uh, heavy commercial traffic. Right. And there was one day where the entire Houston area was socked in with pretty heavy IMC 
And my wife and I were, were essentially flying blind with, uh, you know, multiple, multiple targets on our TCAS. And uh, they just seamlessly uh, uh, helped us get through, and, and ATC was just phenomenally helpful. We were so impressed. I think we ended up flying 11 sorties during that week uh, with Airdrop, and we're just so impressed with, with how, uh, how organized they were and, and very open to changes on the fly, that if we, uh, if we noticed that there needed to be some correction or some uh, adjustment to how people were being dispatched or how supplies were being handled, they, they absolutely just let it happen. So it was a nice uh, balance between sort of a corporate oversight with boots on the ground being able to make the, uh, the, the uh, adjustments as needed. Gotcha. With each hurricane, they've just become much, much more efficient. I would say with uh, Hurricane Michael was, uh, again, the sort of the epitome of organization and efficiency. Gotcha. And then so that was a good way to get started. Now, tell me about, so now if I want to fly out and do one of these uh, missions, now how do I get that, that special call sign? Well, you use it when you um, when you file. It depends on the airspace that you're flying, and I tend to to really like to file IFR no matter where I'm going. And uh, when you when you file, and I typically file through ForeFlight, and you can add your call sign there on ForeFlight. It's this Charlie Mike Foxtrot, and then your last three digits, and that will assign you the Compassion Flight. The other way to do it is that when you're on the ramp or when you're getting ready to depart, if you want VFR flight following, you just introduce yourself as a compassion flight. So uh, it's typically assigned um, uh, just when you're involved in those missions. So the CMF uh, prefix and then the suffix of the last three of your of your registration in number is, is the way to go. That's that's correct. Cool. Okay. Well, that leads us to. Uh, I hate to exclude Debbie on this, but it's a lot of pilot talk, but. That leads me to ask, uh, maybe from both y'all, give us a couple of quick don'ts, what we don't want to do, uh, so we can point people in the right direction. Well, with every with every uh, disaster, we, we do learn a lot of don'ts. And so I'll, I'll sort of, from the pilot's perspective, give you the don'ts. And I know Debbie has some, some don'ts as far as uh, how, how we can be- most efficiently uh, handle um, uh, donations and the flow of donations. But from a from a pilot's perspective, you know, there is a tendency to really, really want to uh, pitch in and just jump into the fray. But that's really not the best way to do it. We, we, we really run into some logistical issues when pilots just show up at the airfield and jump in line to get a load. And we, we certainly appreciate their, their drive to help. But the, the, what you really need to do is wait for uh, – get yourself on the email. There's a, they will uh, send out an email the night before we fly missions, which will explain exactly where the uh, check-in process is, where the uh, pickups will be, and where we're flying to so you can do some pre-flight planning. But it's critically important that each pilot check in with the command center when they arrive because there's a throughput uh, system of assigning the tail numbers in a certain order and where they need to go. And when pilots just show up and jump in line, then that really messes with where we, um, because they're, they're very good at tracking pilots. We really want to, we unfortunately, despite all the, probably at this point, thousands of sorties that have been run, there's been no incidents. Um, and uh, they have a license with FlightAware for a personal tracking. So the Compassion Flight call signs all get tracked through FlightAware in the command center. There you go. But uh, safety being paramount, we want to make sure that everyone checks in and they're given the, the pre-flight briefing on exactly, you know, how to handle TFRs. We had some issues with Michael of uh, some sort of appearing and disappearing and then reappearing TFRs. 
that we had to deal with with the state government to make sure we weren't violating uh, any of those restricted airspaces. And that that's that's real typical during a hurricane because they come and go, especially when uh, VIPs like the president and vice president might show up, or for uh, for other safety mechanisms. Uh, so TFRs are. are prime importance to double check. Absolutely. And that's why I, I feel like it, um, I prefer to do IFR flight planning to really help protect or at a minimum, make sure you get VFR flight plan, uh, flight following to help with that. Right. Um, ATC actually requested in Florida this time not to file IFR because of workload and flow. They, they really specifically requested just VFR flight following. So we try and make sure that we accommodate them because they're being so accommodating to us. Okay. Um, and uh, other don'ts would be not get get their itis. Um, there's a tendency to get the, to get that mission mindset where you're going to accomplish a mission no matter what. And, uh, you know, making sure that uh, you make sure you're, you're getting rest, that you've got adequate fuel and fuel reserves, that you're not pushing safety as far as equipment uh, and weather. Uh, uh, no matter what, you are still PIC. And Operation Airdrop is not going to tell you whether you should or should not fly. And on several occasions, we may, uh, in, in all the missions that we've been involved in, we have on occasion decided to stay on the ground, uh, either because of mechanical issues or because of uh, weather issues. And they in no way uh, hold that against you. If anything, sure. they admire you for um, for making, you know, for saying no despite the urge to want to help. That's, that's a key pilot in command decision. And there are other pilots that, that could uh, slip in and take care of the mission at hand. And safety uh, obviously is Absolutely. paramount. Absolutely. And weight and balance we you know we had you know with each mit each hurricane we've had at least one or two uh, airplanes that were obviously either over gross or out of cg that had to be stopped on the ramp to say you know let's let's take a step back and think about what we're doing and uh, so just slowing down and making sure that that we the uh, ultimate mission of safety in mind gotcha well if for folks who want a little bit more thorough briefing on this um, they could go to the aopa.org uh, internet site and look at the tab that says training and safety and then there is a public benefit flying course that is uh, referenced uh, by the airdrop folks and also by the air care alliance and that is a really cool uh, thing to take a look at and to sort of get briefed on the do's and don'ts um, how to plan for the mission and like you said we don't really need mavericks here uh, top guns in this kind of situation slow and steady like the tortoise is probably going to win the race during a, a relief mission oh absolutely and you know some of the most dangerous uh, situations that I've seen uh, arise when we're at a, um, a receiving facility and and there's no power so there's no tower and you've got a lot of you know VFR traffic trying to get into and out of these smaller airports and making sure that you make your position calls, keep your head on a swivel, and just just really uh, take your time and make sure that uh, we don't get in such a hurry that we end up uh, hurting ourselves or others. Gotcha. I think Debbie might have a couple of... Uh, yeah, I want to th throw the floor open to Debbie, and I, I know that she, she might want to talk a little bit about from her sp perspective what folks can do. And also, I want to I just want to remind people also, they need to kind of be prepared themselves. They don't want to add more complexity to the mission. So you want to kind of show up with your, you know, a little bit of your own food, your own water, a sleeping bag, whatever, whatever you need to be self-sufficient. Absolutely. That, that's that's certainly. We actually brought bed rolls with us for Florida, uh, thinking that we might camp out in the uh, FBO. But a local bed and breakfast. What was the name of that bed and breakfast? Sweet Branch. Water in sweet sweet branch water in I believe is what it was down in Gainesville donated uh, rooms for the Operation Airdrop crew to uh, to sleep at night which was extremely generous we definitely shout out 
And then some of the local hotels also gave reduced rates, Holiday Inn and such. So it was it was it was great. Good deal, well, Debbie. Give us a, from your perspective, being a volunteer, uh, what are some things that you don't want to see folks doing? Um, jumping in without asking for help or where they're needed. A lot of people want to jump in and do everything all at one time. And we really do have a process of step A, step B, step C. And if they can follow the process and, and fall in where they're, they're needed, that would be greatly appreciated. Getting a list of what needs to be donated. Yeah. Yeah. The list is really important too. Uh, Operation Airdrop keeps a list on their Facebook page of what needs to be donated. In the first few days, there is that need for water, but that goes away pretty quickly, and then it's very heavy and very – a lot of times these planes will uh, weigh out before they cube out. So when I put too much weight in there – um, after those those first couple of days, so we can end up with too much water. Right. Well, you don't want to, you don't want to waste supplies. That's the other thing. Yeah, we don't want to waste the supplies. We want to make sure that what is going is what they actually need. So having that, the people on the receiving end has been really critical because we flew one of the missions down in Harvey is just a good example. We flew about an hour and a half to uh, I believe Beaumont, Texas, and one lady was a receiver and she was she was coordinating for a large church group that was distributing for the community and it'd been about maybe five days in and she just looked at me and she said do you have any dry clothes oh man and i looked at her i said no i'm sorry they they told us back and colleen to don't take clothes that you don't need any clothes and she said, we still have no power. We're, we're in the same wet, stinky clothes that we've been in for five days. And I said, would you like us to bring you clothes? And she's just about crying. She said, yes, please. I said, we'll be back in an hour and a half. No problem, because it was about, an, it was about a 45-minute flight. So we jumped in the plane, went back to Colleen, said they need clothes. They filled up the plane with clothes, and we were right back down to the same person delivered her a whole plane full of clothes and she was tears you know thank you so much you have no idea what it's like to go for five days in wet clothes and i think that's the point about both ends of you know both the distribution and the receiving that the operation airdrop while our main purpose is to uh to be at that command center distributing the supplies there needs to be a coordinated effort on the other end as well and some some communities are better better equipped or better able to set up that type of receivership. New Bern, we arrived and there was uh, you know there must have been a hundred people on the ground with tents and a grill and food and and would you you drop the stuff off at the FBO and and people would just drive through the airport parking lot picking out what they needed whether it was formula or diapers or or first aid supplies. And then on the other end of the spectrum, uh, Beaufort, North Carolina, uh, there was one guy down there trying to receive all of the donations because it was just they couldn't make it out to the airport. Oh, I gotcha. So sometimes I think uh, uh, airdrop could probably help uh, if if you're if you're close to one of the uh, facilities that's receiving, then your your volunteerism could be well served at the receiving end. Gotcha. That's a good point you bring up. So there's a little something for everybody. Um, whether you're like we started out the conversation uh, saying that whether you're a pilot or uh, a family member or, or a college student, 
local businesses, any kind of folks could help out in this kind of situation to get the relief supplies to the people that really need it the most. And I know that they're very appreciative. And the thing is, you know, being a pilot and, and volunteering, it's just it gives you such a good feeling to be able to do something like this. Absolutely. It's kind of what uh, uh, what we train for. You know, we we fancy ourselves the, the fighter pilots and the, you know, going going on the missions. And that's what we really like. And to be able to do that at the same time as as truly helping people is 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 very very moving, but but to never forget that uh, again the ground crew is paramount. That uh, the flying is the easy part. Um, uh, the rest of it is is really the challenging part. Yeah, we can't do it without the boots on the ground. So as far as volunteering for that, that's even easier. If you live near an airport and you want to help, just show up. We have a you don't have to call ahead. You don't have to sign up ahead. You don't have to fill out. Uh, any any internet forums, just walk in the hangar. There'll be somebody there at a desk that says volunteer check in. We'll we'll sign you in. We'll give you a name tag and put you to work. So show up with an open heart and good feelings, and you get you'll you'll get work Absolutely. and your work boots. <laughs> and your work boots. And you know it might be two hours. Boots. Some people have two hours to give, and some people have fourteen hours a day to give. Every bit helps. And the same thing goes for pilots. You know, I I did see a couple of pilots who. Who happened to be flying somewhere and and brought and decided to pick up a load and then move on and and so they could fly one mission and then there were other pilots who were there for the entire week so even one mission is helpful. Perfect and you know somebody just thought of my daughter Lauren is a 15 year old and they um, in high school they need to get volunteer credits. Sure. So that's something that probably is nationwide is you know something that parents could think about and also our young listeners you know listening to the Hangar Talk podcast if they want to help out and get involved in aviation a little bit and rack up some volunteer hours for school this would be a good way to do it. Sure there, there are two things to think about from that standpoint are our, our younger son who went to uh, Florida with us was able to get an excused absence from school in exchange for writing a paper about his experience uh, with the volunteerism, and, and the, the school was quite happy to allow him to have that real-world experience. But we got to keep in mind that many uh, airports have a policy of not allowing anyone under the age of 18 through the gate without a parent. Um, so uh, that it's not that uh, under 18 can't volunteer and be helpful, but uh, a lot of times that's going to be behind the gate, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does. Hey, I know we're getting ready to run out of time. we got both of you guys on your lunch hour. Um, Debbie, I'm going to throw the floor open to you. Any final thoughts for, uh, for thinking about folks who are thinking about volunteering? Come help. There's so many different aspects of being able to help. People with disabilities can help. We've had people who who do have some disabilities but are able to sit at the weigh station and run the scales and, and use a Sharpie and write how many pounds are in that package on the scale. It's open to everybody that can help. Equal opportunity employer. And, Sean, I, I know you guys have tried to connect with me last week and you scur- scurried on out to uh, Hurricane Michael, which we appreciate. We're so glad that you made it this week for Hangar Talk. Any final thoughts? Oh, not at all. I think uh, I think this is – this is fantastic for general aviation. I think we're always uh, feeling a little bit on the uh, defensive side uh, for trying to justify GA existence and protecting our right to fly and use our uh, uh, national airspace. And this is a, a wonderful way to prove uh, not only to the uh, to the government, but to the, the American people in general that GA is alive and strong and has a uh, big role to fill in our country. Well, goodness, uh, Sean and uh, and Debbie Malone, we sure appreciate your time on Hangar Talk for the podcast. Y'all have been great guests, and I hope that our paths will cross in person one day soon. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
Okay. Hey, um, thanks for catching up with them, Dave. That was a, a really, really amazing group and a cool story. They are. And they, they are. The group is really cool. I think Sean and Debbie are awesome people. And she had some great pointers for folks who are not aviators that still wanted to help out in these type of relief missions. So there's a little something for everyone, as Debbie said. And as Sean said, you know, use your pilot skills be careful, know your weight and balance, things like that, but pitch in. There's always something for somebody to do. Yeah, great point, great point. Hey, I think that's it for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you could find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk. We're on Apple's iTunes and on the Sporty's Takeoff app. All right, thanks, Dave. We'll see you next time, man. See you next time, Ian. Hanger Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.